number one welcome our new insect overlords I'd like to remind them that as a trusted TV personality uh, I can be helpful in rounding up others to toil in their underground sugar caves greetings my friend we are all interested in the future for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives and remember my friend future events such as these will affect you in the future Greetings, Earthlings. And welcome to Where's My Jetpack, a politics and pop culture podcast with sci-fi and socialist leanings. We broadcast from the No Fate Project HQ, Dire Station Antarctica, on the last Saturday of every month. I'm Unni White, joined by a bright star in a dark universe, a centre of gravity keeping me in orbit, my cosmically attractive co-host Derek Johnson. Oh, thanks, Sonny. That keeps me warm in our current location. Hola, comrades. This month, for our cultural retrospective, we're reviewing the Quatermass series, a series of four BBC sci-fi serials broadcast from the 1950s to the 70s, focusing on the character of Professor Bernard Quatermass, created by writer Nigel Neal in 1953 for the serial The Quatermass mass experiment. The first three Quatermass stories were adapted into Hammer Horror movies, and the series had a significant influence on sci-fi and horror, including Doctor Who, which Neil turned down writing because he thought the show was crap, Marvel's Fantastic Four, 2001 A Space Odyssey, John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy, especially The Thing, Prince of Darkness, written under the pseudonym Martin Quatermass, and in in the mouth of madness. But before we go into that, some wrecks, Ani? My first wreck is the Australian sci-fi and fantasy journal Aurealis, which has been running since 1990. The journal publishes both fiction and non-fiction, and this year it's published two essays by yours truly. Firstly, one on the politics of the X-Files, with contributions from Derek, which was released in the June issue, and secondly, one on the movie Arrival, and how it abandoned the most interesting concept from the short story it's based on and that was released in the September issue. I'll be writing more for the journal next year and there's a bunch of other essays, short stories, reviews and other sci-fi fantasy content released monthly. The journal puts articles up behind a paywall initially but I'll put them out free of charge when the rights are released next year. That said, issues are only $2.99 US and your support would be appreciated they did pay me for the articles so yeah arialis yeah, and I have some wrecks on some Quatermass books. There's Quatermass in the Pit by Kim Newman, Into the Unknown, The Fantastic Life of Nigel Neal, which has been revised and updated at least once. This one has some very good interviews with Neal, John Carpenter, Mark Gaddis, Russell T. Davies, Grant Morrison, and others. And there's also Quatermass in Television and Movies, Kindle Edition. That's by Mark F. Kane. And I also want to wreck the adaptation of the book Lovecraft Country, that's a show now, 
on HBO and H Bomber Guy's updating Lovecraft video that deals with updating Lovecraft, keeping in mind the writer's horrific racism, which both that and the Lovecraft Country book and show deal with deftly. My second rec is from Classic Doctor Who, which I'm currently binging from the start. So my rec is the 7th Doctor and Ace era, which is seasons 25 and 26, the last broadcast at the very tail end of the Classic series. It's a criminally underrated era, but if you like darkness, weirdness, and left-wing politics, you may share my love for it. I'll let an article from the right-wing rag, The Telegraph, sell you on the politics so headline Doctor Who had anti-Thatcher agenda. Left-wing scriptwriters infiltrated Doctor Who to give it anti-Thatcher plotlines in the late 1980s in a failed attempt to, quote, overthrow the government, unquote, Sylvester McCoy has claimed. McCoy, who played the Seventh Doctor from 1987 to 1989, and Andrew Cartmel, the script editor at the time, both admitted the conspiracy saying that it seemed the right thing to do. McCoy, now 66, who took over as the Doctor three months after Margaret Thatcher's third election victory in 1987, said they brought politics into the show deliberately, but very quietly. He said, We were a group of politically motivated people, and it seemed the right thing to do. Our feeling was that Margaret Thatcher was far more terrifying than any monster the Doctor had encountered. Close quote. Yeah, I thought that was pretty incredible, the line about more terrifying than any monster. No, I'm, I'm more laughing as well that the Telegraph overblew this. The way they talk about it as a conspiracy, yeah. People making a TV show, bringing their politics into it is apparently a conspiracy rather than just what artists do in general, you know, artists bring their beliefs into the work they're doing. The Telegraph did go pretty over the top with that and casting it as a conspiracy. They also got the picture wrong. They showed McCoy with Bonnie Langford, who played Mel, when it really should have been with Sophie Eldred, who played Ace, because the whole anti-Thatcher era started, as I said, with Andrew Cartmel taking over head writer duties, and he replaced the insufferable companion Mel with the all-time great Ace, who's a working class militant who wore a leather jacket covered in patches, beat up a Dalek with a baseball bat, and used insults like armpit because they couldn't swear on family TV. And the Cartmel era also experimented with multi-season arcs, complexity, and some of the darkest two stories ever broadcast. My personal favourite serial from this era and possibly ever for Doctor Who, is The Curse of Fenric, a riff on Carpenter's The Fog, with a typically convoluted storyline involving evil from the dawn of time, a creature sent back from a toxic waste future, vampires, covert Soviet soldiers on British soil, and a repressed gay love affair between a dubious fictionalization of Alan Turing and a British army crypto-fascist. And it's exactly as confusing and cluttered as that sounds. At one point, a Soviet soldier wards off vampires with a hammer and sickle badge and his faith in the revolution, because the important thing in the 
the story is having faith and warding something off. So if somebody holds up a Bible or a cross and they don't have faith, they won't ward off the vampires, whereas uh, this person has faith in the revolution, so he's able to ward them off. Then he gifts the badge to Ace for her jacket in a little romantic moment. So it's completely bonkers and completely brilliant. Seasons 25 and 26 of Classic Who are available on Amazon Prime. You can probably skip season 24, which is garbage, which has Mel in it. Yeah, I heard about that hammer and sickle versus the vampire thing. That's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. And then there's a different bit where a priest tries to ward off vampires with a Bible, but he fails. And that's because the vampires taunt him with British bombs killing children. They manage to destroy his faith by reminding him of, like, of the war. And so he loses his faith and they, they kill him. So that was pretty incredible. Like, you, you have to you have to have faith in the item you're holding up. It doesn't matter what the iconography is, so long as you have faith in it. It's pretty amazing. And for your meat space wrecks, as put by Wellington's great binge culture collective, stay safe, be kind, and trust no one. Right, this month uh, we're going to alternately review each Quatermass serial and their movie adaptations. But before that, some background. Quatermass creator Thomas Nigel Neal, born April 18, 1922, and died on October 29, 2006, was a Manx screenwriter who wrote professionally for more than 50 years, was a winner of the Somerset mom award and was twice nominated for the BAFTA award for best British screenplay. In 2000, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Horror Writers Association, predominantly a writer of thrillers that used science fiction and horror elements, though he didn't consider himself a sci-fi writer. He was best known for the creation, of course, of the character of Professor Bernard Quatermass. Quatermass was a heroic scientist who appeared in various television, film, and radio productions written by Neil for the BBC, Hammer Film Productions, and Thames Television between 1953 and 1996. Neil wrote original scripts and successfully adapted works by George Orwell, John Osborne, H.G. Wells, and Susan Hill. He was most active in television, joining BBC Television in 1951. His final script was transmitted on ITV in 1997. Neil wrote well-received television dramas, such as The Year of the Sex Olympics in 1968 and The Stone Tapes in 1972, which is another really good one. Of science and the occult. In addition to the Quatermass serials, he has been described as, quote, one of the most influential writers of the 20th century and as, quote, having invented popular television. Neil was lured to Hollywood by John Landis to script a Creature from the Black Lagoon remake that fell apart and was brought in by Joe Dante to write the original script Halloween 3 Season of the Witch which was butchered by arch producer Dino De Laurentiis, burning him on working in Hollywood. Quatermass also inspired Stephen King's The Tommyknockers, which is essentially his version of Quatermass in the Pit, the British space vampire movie Life Force, 
the X-Files, of course, and its movie, uh, Fight the Future, and the horror comedy cult classic, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And in the early 1970s, a British progressive rock group named both themselves and their first album, Quatermass. Now, there's some meta-themes of all of the stories that he wrote with Quatermass, and a big part of it is about United States versus uh, UK problem-solving philosophies. And you see that especially in the Quatermass experiment and its movie version especially. Uh, Nigel Neal explained in a 1990s interview the background that had led him to formulate Quatermass and the other characters of the original serial in 1953. Quote, I wanted to write some strong characters, but I didn't want them to be like those horrible people in those awful American science fiction films, chewing gum and stating the obvious. Not that I wanted to do something terribly British, but I didn't like all the flag waving you got in those films. I tried to get real human interest in the stories and some good humor. And I think that that's a really good example that writer Kim Newman compared between the first version of The Thing movie versus the Quatermass experiment. And this kind of seems like a comment aimed at that era of American sci-fi B-movies on Neil's side. Writing in 2005, the television history lecturer, Dr. Katherine Johnson, felt that in the original three 1950 serials, Quatermass as a character represented the championing of science and rationality over the supernatural and the fantastic. Quote, as a leading scientific innovator, Quatermass is invested with scientific and moral authority. Over the three serials, his authority is tested and undermined. Despite this, the narrative structure of all three serials works to reinforce the authority invested in Quatermass and in science. Although scientific enterprise is responsible for disastrous consequences in the first two Quatermass serials, it is only through science that the alien invasions are overcome. He is invested with the narrative authority to understand and explain the fantastic events depicted. And this part was touched on in the book I recommended by the writer and critic Kim Newman, who went further explaining in a 2003 television documentary on Nigel Neal's career that he believed Quatermass to be not only a representation of science, but of humanity itself. Referring to the conclusion of the Quatermass experiment, he commented, quote, it almost boils down to the editorial speech by Quatermass representing humanity or the humane aspects of humanity. He talks to the monster, and so the monster is defeated by an intellectual argument or an emotional appeal. Like Neil, he contrasts this to American science fiction productions where the alien adversary would be defeated by it, quote, being blown up or electrocuted or having the entire firepower of the army turned against it, end quote. Hammer had altered their film version of the story so that the creature is in fact killed by being electrocuted. In contrast to Newman's idea of Quatermass as the embodiment of humanity, writer and lecturer Peter Hutchings, in his essay, We Are the Martians, sees Quatermass as an isolated character. Quote, in the 1950s Quatermass stories, Quatermass himself 
is someone who, while working to protect the nation, remains a curiously isolated figure, bereft of anything resembling a meaningful relationship. In the 1979 Quater Mass, he has acquired a granddaughter, possibly connected with this, is the fact that here he seems a much weaker figure who can only defeat the aliens through the sacrifice of the lives of both himself and his granddaughter, end quote. Hutchings also compared this to the American productions of the era, quote, the standard, if not cliched figures of the clean-cut, square-jawed hero and his girl, which are present in some form or another in most U.S. SF films of this period, are absent, end quote. Now we're going to review all of them alternately, all of the Quatermass serials and their adaptations. So first off, we have 1953's Quatermass Experiment. Like all of the original BBC serials, this was obviously created and written by Nigel Neal. In the serial, the first manned spaceship crashes to Earth. Mysteriously, two of the three astronauts are missing, and it transpires that the one remaining is infected with an alien intelligence that slowly transforms him into a blob creature. Broadcast three years before the Russians launched Sputnik, the actual first crewed spacecraft. In this, the first crewed rocket is launched in Australia and coordinated by the British Rocket Group. Heading up the British Rocket Group is one Bernard Quatermass, played by Reginald Tate, as a diffident and conscientious BBC patriarch. This was the heyday of BBC paternalism, with the slogan, Inform, Educate, Entertain, and Guiding Programming. So, scientific education and humanitarian concerns ran throughout popular TV drama. It's remarkable how kind and soft-spoken a hero Quatermass is at this point. After the opening exposition, the first thing he does is comfort a woman whose husband is at risk. He first escalates from soft-spoken to grumpy when the cops try to treat the situation as a criminal case. You know, without a certain amount of help from you, it's Why are you treating Victor Caroon as a suspect in a criminal case? Oh, come, Professor. That's rather hard. When the Wimbledon police report, we have to make if inquiries... If I can save you any time, this contains particulars of all three members of the crew. I am convinced that the only inquiry likely to serve a useful purpose is a scientific one, and I propose to carry that out myself. I've had Karun transferred from the hospital. I think if anyone but an old middle-class white man spoke to the cops like that, it wouldn't go well for them. It's similar to the third Doctor era of Doctor Who, where he worked with the military but consistently made the case for scientific methods over military ones, at one point calling military intelligence a contradiction in terms. Unfortunately, also like Doctor Who, a number of episodes were burninated by the Beeb. This short-sighted action was due to lack of space, scarcity of materials, and a lack of rebroadcast rights. Of course, this was decades before digital tech compressed everything and made it endlessly duplicable, and before fan culture made a fetish of archiving everything. It's hard to judge the overall quality now due to the burninating of the later episodes. The BBC serials from this period are a bit of a slow burn, so while the 
other serials start slow and build up some excellent momentum by the end. In Experiment, we only have the talky exposition without the later horror of alien transformation. Basically, we're missing the exciting bits. In any case, Quatermass was a hit at the time and obviously launched the series. The serial plays on anxieties about unknown possibilities in the era of the space race. Obviously, it's the story of an alien force being brought back to Earth, but it also establishes an intriguing running theme of the Quatermass series, being the alien inside the familiar, not just out there, but inside us. At first, there's an alien inside the human returning from space. Then when the alien takes over physically, there's a human inside the alien, which Quatermass appeals to in defeating it. The line between human and alien would eventually collapse in Quatermass in the pit, but that's another story. They are to reach a height of 1,500 miles above the Earth, and there learn what is to be learned. For an experiment is an operation designed to discover some unknown truth. It is also a risk. Two years later, in 1955, Hammer released a feature-length remake of Experiment. The first obvious change is an X rather than an EX in the Experiment. The Hammer remake starts more rapidly and viscerally, with young lovers interrupted by a rocket crashing to Earth, rather than white coats reeling off numbers in technical terms, although both scenes portray the same events from different angles. One just has a bigger budget and a faster pace. The direction by Val Guest is generally strong in setting this faster pace and an increasingly clammy horror atmosphere. Since it's not burninated, we get to see the astronaut's transformation and the simple makeup effect of making him ultra sweaty is effectively creepy although the final blob form is more dated and kind of what you come to expect from 50s sci-fi the biggest weakness of the hammer remake is the portrayal of quatermass himself character creator nigel neal hated brian donlevy's performance and the contrast is pretty strong between tate's compassionate, soft-spoken intellectual, and Brian Donlevy's domineering bluster. He tends to bark lines, so when Tate's Quatermass lays into the cops, it's an escalation. When Brian Donlevy's Quatermass lays into the cops, it's just how he talks to everyone. The real Quatermass gets huffy for good reasons, because of willful ignorance and cruelty, not just because he wants to get his way. The difference isn't just in the performance, it's also in the script, which was adapted from Neil's story by Richard Landau and director Val Guest. They write Quatermass as a more domineering figure, pushing the faster-paced story along with brute force, and the differences really come to a head in the climax. In the BBC version, when one character suggests electrocuting the creature, Quatermass replies, quote, We're going to meet an intelligence, one that's still at least partly human, close quote. In the end, he successfully appeals to the human memories still inside the creature. In the Hammer version, he goes with the original suggestion and electrocutes it remorselessly as a first resort. 
So while the more cinematic style of the remake is effective, it's unfortunately a philosophical departure from Neil's compassionate humanism in favor of a ruthless pragmatism. Yeah, and this one, what do you think of this one, ultimately? Of the Hammer remake? Yeah. Well, it's arousing enough, I think, if you like kind of old school sci-fi with horror elements. It's a perfectly decent Hammer piece of schlock. It's just not a very good a mess story. It's pretty funny that they named it with the X because it got an X rating. So they decided to play up to that. And wasn't there like a sequel to this? I can never remember the difference between all the American names of this one and then what the unofficial sequel to this because Neil refused to do a sequel. Um, I think it's like The Creeping Unknown or something like that. Or was that the American version of this? Yeah, they changed the name of the scientist and then they, they changed the name. Creeping Unknown is the title, the U.S. title of the Quatermass Experiment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is the beginning of our, our, our long love affair with Brian Donlevy. Right. Uh, I'm just looking it up. Uh, X, X the Unknown, X the is, unknown? The, is the unofficial so, sequel. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it was made the following year. So, yeah, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't what about... What was the name of the doctor in that one? Uh, it was Dr. Adam Royston, um, <laughs> but yeah, Neil didn't didn't like how that how they portrayed Quatermass in mm -hmm. in the in the film adaptation. I think that's uh, one of the but, first Dr. Quatermass clones of many. I think we'll find that there are many over the decades of unofficial Dr. Mm -hmm. Quatermasses, including in uh, Doctor Who. Yeah. And it was also remade, uh, Experiment was also remade by the BBC in 2005. And as a kind of gimmick, this was the first live made-for-TV drama the BBC had broadcast in 20 years. It's competently executed, aside from some live fluffs. But it's hard to see what the point of it all is. The original experiment was about the horror of the unknown and the age of the space race. In 2005, the space race was long dead, so what is the story about? In this version, it's the first privately funded spaceship rather than the first crewed ship, but it doesn't really have anything to say about that. I'm sure most audience members probably forgot that aspect because it's pretty much beside the point. And like the Hammer remake, the 2005 remake tightens the story to feature length, but unlike the Hammer remake, it does retain the more humanist ending, but this seems rote rather than deeply felt. A lot of the dialogue is word for word, but it just doesn't add anything. It's not intellectually stimulating like the best Quatermass. This all sounds harsh, but it's perfectly watchable and well executed. It's just less than the sum of its parts. It's probably more accessible for people who can't stand the slower pace and cheesy effects of 50s film and TV. But works like The X-Files, John Carpenter movies, and of course Doctor Who were far better unofficial updates of Quatermass because they had their own voice rather than just repeating Neil's words. 
The remake also features a few future Whoverse actors, so notably 10th Doctor David Tennant, Indira Varna, who would later play Susie in Torchwood, and mega fanboy Mark Gattis, who wrote for the show and appeared in the Lazarus Experiment. Meanwhile, Jason Fleming is the youngest actor to play Quatermass, but he's pretty forgettable. At least Brian Donlevy was memorable, albeit for the wrong reasons. Fleming just doesn't really make much of an impact. Tennant is more charismatic as sidekick Briscoe, foreshadowing his popular portrayal of the Doctor. Yeah, when Tennant was cast as the Doctor, uh, they changed the line at the last minute. So Quatermass says, it's good to have you back, Doctor, rather than it's good to have you back, Briscoe. (laughs) And it was good to have the Doctor back. He got the Doctor part during the rehearsals. And, you know, I kind of think that it would have worked better if they switched the actors and had Fleming play his character and had Tennant play Quatermass. I think it might have worked better. It was okay, but I kind of had that feeling as well of what is it saying? Is he supposed to be like Richard Branson or something? I guess now if it was made, like, is this making fun of, like, Elon Musk or somebody? Yeah, well, with the first privately manned spaceship, you'd think it was something like that. I have a sort of a weird sneaking suspicion that it's a kind of weird nationalism going on, that it's like, well, if the British can't launch the first crewed spaceship, they can launch the first private spaceship in, you know, the age of New Labour. Like, this isn't very far out from New Labour, where it's all sort of the BBC having to kind of embrace neoliberal values. Yeah, privatised space. There was always an element of celebration of British know-how, what have you. So in this case, it's kind of the almost the neoliberal version of that, with it being a first private spaceship. And this did review well, so I'm probably wrong about it. Yeah, it was okay. I mean, it was successful in one of the most popular programs ever broadcast on BBC4. But, you know, maybe the structural mistake was shooting as one long single movie broadcast live rather than, you know, again, broken up as four half hour serials. And I think it was also, yeah, again, it was all right. But I think not seeing the monster really screwed it because... As we saw in some of the later serials, they did try to have pre-filmed segments. So they could have very easily had a pre-filmed, you know, CGI segment with the monster. Yeah, I'm just not sure what the point was. I think Neil had something to say, but I'm not sure that this really had much to say. Other than maybe that sort of generic celebration of British know-how and, you know, nostalgia for successful British TV, which doesn't feel like much of a statement to me, like uh, something that really desperately needs to be said. This technical waffle of witness space velocities, synergic curves, mass ratios, all spaceship jargon. Do you get the feel of that? It's above my head, I know that much. It's mankind trying to sound certain of himself, Jacko. Because he knows that just beyond the air begins a new wilderness. Pitch dark both day and night. Empty and cold. Alright, we're going to move on to Quatermass 2. Now, Quatermass 2 is a British science fiction serial originally broadcast by the BBC in the autumn of 1955. It was the second, obviously, in the Quatermass series by writer Nigel Neal, and it was the oldest of those serials to survive in its entirety in the BBC archives. Now, in this one, the serial sees John Robinson as Professor Bernard 
Quatermass of the British Experimental Rocket Group being asked to examine strange meteorite showers. His investigations lead to his uncovering a vast conspiracy involving alien infiltration at the highest levels of the British government. Already it's starting to sound familiar. Uh, as some of Quatermass's closest colleagues fall victim to the alien influence, he is forced to use his own unsafe rocket prototype, which recently caused a nuclear disaster at an Australian testing range at the beginning of the series, and now he uses the one to prevent the aliens from taking over mankind. There's some parts that I found interesting here, culturally, just like with, you know, what was the other, later one saying, what was some of the things saying in the older one there was like an old man in the pub that was like attacking big government i kept thinking was this guy a tory or something you know and uh, he also meets an old tramp who sounds like Gollum. there was a lot of interesting characters and accents he met in this one quatermass 2 comprised six half hour episodes transmitted live from studio g at the bbc's lime grove studios in london because of the live nature of the performances most of the episodes overran their allotted half-hour slots slightly. Not every scene was performed live, as I mentioned before. Because of the increased budget of £7,552, this was spent on the serial, nearly double the amount on the Quatermass experiment. Rudolf Cartier was able to include a larger proportion of pre-filmed inserts on 35mm film, which were included during the live transmission missions of each episode. The location filmed sequences were the most ambitious that had been attempted in British television drama, which was usually predominantly studio-bound. Quatermass 2 was one of the first BBC drama productions to be repeated from a telerecording rather than having the production re-performed live that, well, that must have been hell, for any second showing as had been the norm in the past. And again, I think the 2005 remake of the first serial would have benefited from these kinds of pre-filmed sequences, especially with the creature. Now, with the movie, Hammer's 1957 Quatermass 2 starred American actor Brian Donlevy as the professor. This actually invented using the number in sequels in modern movies. The visual and thematic parallels to X-Files and the future especially Mulder's giant Jiffy Pop poppers are very telling. The black ammoniac slime is not unlike the black oil in X-Files, and the aliens are using synthetic foods as a cover where the conspirators on X-Files are disguising the black oil as GMO corn. In both versions, we have conflicting or overlapping collectives, government, military, union, aliens. It shows how all the aliens had to do is exploit government and union bureaucracy of human society, and they are completely unquestioned, especially how wartime propaganda appeals to not have, quote, loose lips or don't question and other thought terminating cliches, you know, where one guy was basically like, well, the government said so so I'm not going to question anything. The government conspiracy is better portrayed in the serial, and the conspiracy allows aliens to hide in plain sight, and nobody questions the armed factory. And the, just the one thing I thought was odd was that the police were strangely absent in the town. 
not as chilling or paranoid, nor were these beings hive minds taking over like a temporary body snatchers or hindlines, the puppet masters, while being from the same pedigree. The reveal of the other colonies around the world and the swarm in space supplies more of the dread, I thought. Interesting that in the serial, the PR hack is human serving up important people to be converted by giving people tours of the factory. But like in the movie, it's just like a guy who's very obviously infected. The movie, it really suffers from that, of the aliens being too obviously identified. Whereas in the serial, it's more subtle and it's used for strategic surprise and plot reveals. And it could have been more subtle and mysterious who was an alien in disguise. The movie is just too obvious. It lacks nuance. It is subtle about everything. Everything and everyone is just very broad, stereotyped, and over-explained for us dummies of the time. I laughed when they first came across the plant, and Don Levy immediately says, hey, it's the moon colony or something. And the serial handled the revelation much better and subtle. And the main improvement is more locations and sets, at least in the movie. And actually, the makeup was reused from the serial. I actually did like the outfits of the alien security guards in the movie, though, over the TV show. I thought that was cool. All the BBC series and even Conclusion have great grounded world building and characters that are believable as the sci-fi or supernatural elements unfolds like peeling an onion. And Neil has perfect pacing for doing that. Whereas other people, I guess, would feel that that's kind of boring. You know, he does it at just the right pace with each episode. And now with BBC versus Hammer, it's BBC hands down, the superior part two. And I find all British sci-fi and horror benefit from a seriousness American B-movies lack. I notice British actors act just the same in a drama as they do in sci-fi. And I noticed that probably of the American B-movies I've been most impressed by is actually the thing where the actors act pretty normal instead of acting like they're just, uh, you know, slacking off or whatever. I'm definitely not a fan of the movie or star Brian Donlevy, who is easily the worst Professor Quatermass actor. He's, what a pushy asshole his Quatermass is. And it's been pointed out by many he's a rude borderline sociopath. American cliche era Hollywood accent surrounded by posh British accents was weird, unlike the diversity of the UK accents in the serial. It just made it very odd to the ears. And he ran around like a big penguin man, bowling through everything. Apparently, he was quite drunk. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Quatermass is supposed to be a bit abrasive, but Don Levy is excessively abrasive. As I said, he's not really abrasive for the right reasons. You know, when the other Quatermass actors escalate, it's because some sort of a principle has been violated. With Don Levy, it's just because he always wants to bluster around and get his way. I also agree about the pacing of this one. I mean, I think it has a real procedural feel. It's interesting that, that Quatermass, who's ostensibly a scientist for 
for the British Rocket Group essentially becomes like a Sherlock character where he's just investigating this town and you sort of get this really interesting procedural account of like different parts of society that he's investigating so the conspiracy is revealed through that investigation and that's something that it's hard for the features to really capture because they have to have a faster pace so they don't always have that procedural feeling yeah and look at how the movie starts it just starts with like a typical like a boyfriend girlfriend driving their car or a woman or somebody who's driving their car and they get an accident with somebody because they were already hurt or something and it was like everybody just has posh accents and there's just no nuance to the characters like even though the people are living in different parts of England some people are living in the, the countryside it's just like watching the serial you can tell that these are small town folks and that these are working class people you know in a company town and just listen to the union boss is hilarious you know in the serial and I think you're totally right and that's the right word that I'd even think of is that yeah this is a procedural and it's like really cool trying to solve a mystery as like a scientific Sherlock here yeah, the main thing that stands out for me personally is the factory uprising against alien exploiters. There are other images that stood out for other people, so Mark Gaddis has talked about the man covered in oil as the most sort of resonant image from his childhood, which he later echoed in League of Gentlemen, and as you say, the X-Files, the black oil and the X-Files is obviously echoing that. My first Quatermass binge was around 2008, knowing it was an influence on Doctor Who, I rented Quatermass 2 from the library so it was actually the second one I watched first and as a baby communist at the time it kind of blew my mind that there was mass broadcast sci-fi where factory workers organize an armed uprising against their exploiters. That was literally the only thing seared in my memory until rewatching more recently. But the politics are pretty ambiguous. Neil actually intended the aliens as an allegory for communist infiltration. There's an interesting comment from him where he said that McCarthyism in the US was going after an imaginary threat, but in the UK he thought there actually was an issue of communist infiltration. A lot of things that he's casting as communist infiltration kind of look just like normal capitalism to me. So you've got the industrialization of the countryside, which is what had been happening in the UK for a few centuries, two or three centuries by then, transforming social relations, you know, replacing the sort of societies that existed in the countryside before then. You have the sort of conformism of these new company towns, new kind of social relations, and then you have workers' resistance, and there's an interesting thing there that actually some of the most militant workers' resistance historically has come from people who have kind of experienced the first generation of capitalism. People who remembered maybe a society before their area was industrialized uh, or like agricultural. Yeah, that was part of my comment about the old man that was in the pub. That was like somebody that kind of remembered things before, you know, he's like, oh, back in my day, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And like it, it is often the case that there's a lot of militancy among people who have experienced a different kind of social relations. And even, you know, the union bureaucrats saying comrade while kind of defending the exploiters, I can see how that probably could be a comment on the kind of CP bureaucrats. But again, that's just, in my mind, that's just normal capitalism. It doesn't require any kind of perversion. 
Well, it's a phoniness union, you know, trying to pretend that he's leftist, but he really is uh, somebody that works with the company and he works with management. That's like basically a yellow union, you know, that was a yellow union. And I think that shows a little bit of nuance and some intelligence of uh, how labor works, because there was a very interesting comment in Quatermass in the Pit, where the archaeologist that, that found the hominid bones, when he was having trouble with one of the soldiers when he asked the soldier like hey you know can i get the bones out of here and the guy just kind of blew him off and said well, i can only do what i can do and he goes into the office and closes the door and the archaeologist said well, i guess he's just going to work to rule so there's nothing i could do now so i mean they knew that comment and that's something i've only learned in the labor movement you see it all throughout a lot of bbc stuff actually doctor who has has some similar references like there's a doctor who episode from the 60s the war games which is very quite a massy story and in that story there's kind of aliens who are manipulating various human wars and kind of setting humans against each other in that case their soldiers kind of unite across enemy lines and unite against their common oppressors and they end up chanting unity is strength which was a union slogan of the time so yeah you've got this thing of human oppression oppression we're familiar with which is represented through sort of alien manipulation and then you have this kind of working class resistance to it and it's kind of funny it's a bit ambiguous politically because it's almost populist and that like it's the aliens that are sort of perverting human society and I think it comes back to the kind of again blurry line between the alien and familiar and quite a mass generally uh, and I think that's how sci-fi and speculative fiction allows people who are working in or I guess where's the BBC is like state funded television or you know, working in corporate media and the Hollywood that you can really get some pro-labor messages into a story by using aliens as a stand-in. It's a general ambiguity I find with these body snatchers type stories. Yeah, body snatchers goes both ways. It's either a stand-in for conformity of McCarthyism or for communism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For me, growing up after the Cold War, not only really knowing it as history, none of it really reminds me of communist infiltration. It all just reminds me of just capitalist culture and ideology and conformity. Whereas obviously in the 50s and 60s, people would have been a lot more looking out for signs of communist infiltration. So it would have kind of read that way more. So Yeah, see, even my age as somebody who was alive back then, the way I read it and understood it, and even before I was older, could get, get it, the way it came across in in these kinds of communist infiltration stories was more like it was more about the paranoia of the people fearing infiltration more than the infiltration is real (laughs) you know what i mean yeah and sometimes the the infiltrations you don't expect while you're fearing other infiltrations is sometimes far worse and the conformity to other things is sometimes far worse than the communist under the bed that you fear it's kind of an example of a bit of a gap between author intent and how the audience takes things especially for me not growing up in a cold war environment i'm thinking of completely different political references to what people would have been thinking of in the 50s and 60s so i mean the author's intent has an impact but it obviously resonates in different ways with different audiences uh, it's like the author is half dead my granny was ill the day the earth stood still but he told us where we stand and f-
Flash Gordon was there in silver underwear. Claude Rains was the invisible man. Then something went wrong for Faye Ray and King Kong. They were caught in a celluloid jam. Then at a deadly pace it came from outer space. And this is how the message ran. Science fiction. Double feature. Doctor will build a creature. See androids fighting. Brad and Janet and Francis stars in forbidden planet. Janet Scott fight a Triffid Thespis poison and kills. Dana Andrews said prunes, gave him the runes, and passing the muse lots of skills. But when worlds collide, said George Powell to his bride, I'm gonna give you some terrible thrills. Like a science fiction double feature, Doctor X will build a creature, see androids fighting. Fred and Janet and Francis stars in Forbidden Planet. Oh, at the late night double feature picture show, I wanna go.
Those were the dulcet tones of Richard Payne, covering science fiction double feature by Richard O'Brien. Now for Ani's review of Quatermass in the Pit, released over 1957 and 58. So this story of insectoid ancestors is the strangest of the series, and I'd say the best. It's a culmination of a general theme we've touched on, the alien inside the familiar. And again here, that line between the alien and the human really collapses. The philosophy is that nothing human is alien to quite a mass, and everything human is alien. So what's the actual story? It starts with some builders discovering an old alien ship, the Cockney, and you've noted that the serials have a diversity of British accents, but it's also worth noting they're very much used to indicate class. So it wasn't until the 80s or so that so-called regional accents would be placed in a position of authority in BBC shows. Over the course of the story, it transpires that Hobbs End, the area where the ship is buried, has an ancient association with the devil. The scientific explanation, such as it is, is that the aliens are the origins of humanity, having fled from a dying Mars, but normies resist this finding by Quatermass. By this point in the series, everyone already accepts that aliens exist, but the concept of alien origins for humanity is a bridge too far, kind of related to backlash against Darwinism as a threat to human exceptionalism. And ultimately, it turns out the vestiges of the insectoid species are buried in human consciousness and the aliens were kind of racist so an accident triggers a rampage against people perceived as different. This apocalyptic climax was intended by Neil as an allegory for the Notting Hill race riots in the same year. So via a strangely circuitous sci-fi route it ends up as an explicit story of a race riot and here it's racism rather than minorities that are dangerously alien. The Quatermass saga may be profoundly white and liberal, but its humanism here extends to anti-racism. Sadly, it's that most common thing in sci-fi, the allegory for racism where everyone is white, but at least Neil is on the right side of history here broadly. Meanwhile, Andrew Morell takes over the lead role, and it's a measured performance with a quiet urgency. He's constantly frustrated with bureaucrats and military hacks, but rarely raises his voice. In the concluding episodes, the orchestral score builds up an effective sense of anxiety, particularly the use of strings. And both Prometheus and Ooh. the X-Files also did this. Oh yes, both for Prometheus. They also both did the Alien Origin story. Also kind of both for X-Files Season 7. That wasn't a very good season. Yeah, when Mulder, what was that? The Sixth Extinction? And then when Mulder was having headaches because he had the leftover alien genes or whatever and then they find the spaceship with the bible and the Quran and all these holy books written all over it and he's like institutionalized it was just kind of corny like it didn't work really but there's a common assumption in both of those prometheus and the x-files that creator equals god so if there's a creator for humanity like an intelligent creator therefore that is god whereas 
in quite a mess our, our insectoid ancestors are quite explicitly connected with Satan, which doesn't really make much sense in terms of Christian theology, but it also doesn't have to. So although there's a scientific explanation, it's a fairly Lovecraftian, eldritch theology. So in quite a mess, the concept is used to make the familiar strange. In the X-Files and Prometheus, it's used to blur the lines between science and creationism, which isn't nearly as deep as Chris Carter or Ridley Scott thinks. It's the sort of thing I thought was deep as a 14-year-old, you know, what if science is real but religion is also real? And with this weird, real Christian centrism that's kind of unexamined and that kind of bad philosophy that people again just default from creator to Christian God and they act like they're doing an intellectual exploration but actually they haven't really examined their own cultural assumptions at all. Well, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness did it far better of having Jesus as an alien and Satan as green goo. Yeah, and as far as X-Files doing quite a mess, the Black Oil was was a much better quite a mess tribute than the Alien Origin story. So I think for four Alien Origin stories on screen, which have become kind of a corny cliche by now because of the conspiracy theories and the History Channel guy, I don't think there's really a better execution of the concept than, than quite a mess in the pit, which kind of retains its weirdness decades later. Yeah, and that's very good because, you know, it's not exactly an original idea because really the idea comes from Lovecraft. And the irony is maybe he knew this when he wrote Quatermass in the Pit, but that the Martians were fucking racists, social Darwinists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you could take it as an early subversion of Lovecraft, an early turning Lovecraft on its head the way Lovecraft Country does. Yeah, because in Lovecraft, and I think in this, it's more like another older species creates you humanity but like they weren't thinking it was just a second thought you know because like in lovecraft humanity is created by accident and in this humans were already here as hominids but they were trying to alter some of our ancestors to be more martian and survive and the martian dna passed forward and carried forward both the genetic memory that fed into obviously giving a scientific grounding for witchcraft and the paranormal and also it carried forward the genocidal nature of the martians and kind of gives a sci-fi explanation for racism and genocide and social darwinism it may be that there are vestiges of it remaining in all of us from the time when they colonized this earth the second hand so as far as anybody is well we're the martians now if another of these things should ever be found, we are armed with knowledge, but we also have knowledge of ourselves and of the ancient destructive urges in us that grow more deadly as our populations increase and approach in size and complexity those of ancient Mars. Every war crisis, witch hunt, race riot, purge is a reminder and a warning. We are the Martians. If we cannot control the inheritance within us, this will be their second dead planet.
The remake came nearly 10 years later in 67, and it's the first Quatermass in colour, so we get an opening credit skull in bright red, and we get the insectoid ancestors in bright green. They finally recast the lead with Andrew Keir taking over from Brian Donlevy. He was noticeably the youngest Quatermass until Fleming in 2005, a spring chicken merely in his 40s, but he fit the role snug. He gets some righteous indignation going without overplaying it. He's got a great beard and mainly he's a relief after Brian Donlevy. This was the first Hammer remake written by Neil himself and it shows. Finally mixing Hammer's spectacle and Neil's humanist voice, which unfortunately before that we'd kind of have to choose between. You know, it's either the lower budget with the better writing or the better spectacle with the losing the voice of the creator. And the themes about war, racism, and xenophobia remain very explicit. All the Hammer remakes, of course, as I've said, are faster and slicker than the BBC versions. But this is the only remake that doesn't feel like it's missing something from the original. And it's probably the best Quatermass overall, BBC or Hammer, and the most accessible 20th century Quatermass. I'd say as well. It doesn't have the kind of 50s-ness of the original BBC serials. Yeah, I think so, and I think it might have been successful too because I believe he may have written the script himself and then wrote a novel based on it as well. Poppity, poppity, puff. Poppity, poppity, puff. Poppity, poppity, ring stone round. If you lose your hat, it will never be found. So pull up your britches, right up to your chin. Unfasten your cloak with a bright new pin. And when you are free, One, two, Freddy's coming for you. Yeah, it reminds you of that. But uh, also, the movie starts Quatermass Conclusion with a really great quote. It says, In the last quarter of the 20th century, the whole world seemed to sicken. Civilized institutions, whether old or new, fell, as if some primal disorder was reasserting itself. And men asked themselves... Why should this be? To me, I wonder, was this our Martian nature reasserting itself as far as uh, the author was concerned? Catching up? This was the only entry that wasn't made by the BBC or adapted for Hammer and was less popular for some. And I, I like it a lot. It's one of the first I was introduced to after Quatermass in the Pit. I owned this on VHS back in the day. This serial was produced by Houston Films for Thames Television and broadcast on the ITV network in October and November 1979. Like its three predecessors, Quatermass was again written by Nigel Neal, 
as creator. It is the fourth and final television serial to feature the character of Professor Bernard Quatermass, this time played by John Mills. It originally aired on ITV as a four-parter, and it was also edited into a two-hour movie, and that version was supposed to be shown in cinemas outside the UK with new scenes written by Neil, and it wasn't very popular, so it didn't get much play, and so there's not many copies of it, and I have had a very hard time finding copies of it on the internet or anywhere. Like I said, I only own the four-parter, so I've seen that one many times. It was originally conceived as a BBC production, but after the corporation lost faith in the project due to spiraling costs, work was halted. Some at the BBC were fighting for it, and the BBC passed in spite of historic connection to the network. The scripts were taken by Euston Films and Neil, then working for ITC, and he was commissioned to rewrite the scripts, of course, into these two versions of the four-parter and the 100-minute film that was going to be for international theatrical release. Much of the setting for the story was influenced by social and geopolitical situation of the early 1970s. He wrote it initially in 73. But the things that influenced it were many of the strikes, power cuts, the oil crisis, and developments in the space race, such as the then-planned Apollo-Soyuz missions in Skylab, and the hippie youth movement of the late 1960s. Now, of course, being finished finally in the late 70s, a punk counterculture would have, of course, maybe made more sense. And to be fair, Neil did want the cult to be more punk than hippie. Now, chosen to play Equator Mass as the fourth different actor to play the role in the four serials on television was the distinguished actor John Mills, who had appeared in significant roles in many high-profile British films. And Mills, whose only television credit at the time was the Zoo Gang, was reluctant to take the part, but was persuaded by his wife who liked the script. Following Equator Mass, he appeared in Gandhi in 1982, and and, uh, several other movies working right up to his death in 2005. Joe Cap, who was the other character closely working with Quatermass, was played by Simon McCorkendale, who had previously appeared in the short Baby, one of the episodes of Nigel Neal's anthology series Beasts. Following Quatermass, McCorkendale appeared in several movies before moving to the United States, where after playing a few guest roles on television. He secured a part in the horrible Jaws 3D, and he was the lead in the short-lived series Man uh, in 1983, I, I love which is where I know I just remember from. the endless looping of, like, the same stock footage yes. of, like, was it a panther in a warehouse? They just loop it, like, seemingly five times an episode. That was incredible. Everyone should watch Man again. Manimal actually made a reappearance in the 2000s on a show that Glenn Larson later did, and he had a cameo, and it was just like totally out of nowhere. It was like, holy shit, it's Manimal in the year 2003, you know? <laughs> so he was a series regular on quite a few shows here, and then he returned to the UK, and he passed away in 2010. In a seeming prediction of the Brexit, Quatermass 
seems to be set in a collapsing, crime-ridden police state with privatized pay cops in a near future not unlike the first Mad Max, in which large numbers of young people are joining a cult, the planet people, and gathering at prehistoric sites corresponding with occult ley lines they're using dowsing to follow, believing that they will be transported to a better life on another planet. And the series uh, begins with Professor Quatermass arriving in London to look for his granddaughter, Hetty Carlson, and witnessing the destruction of two spacecraft and the disappearance of a group of planet people at a stone circle by an unknown force. He investigates this force believing that Hetty may be in danger. As the series progresses, it becomes apparent that the planet people are being harvested rather than transported to another planet. Whereas the planet people's leader, Kickalong, believes that the planet people who have been gathered at Ringstone Round have been transported to, quote, the planet. But it is clear to Quatermass and Joe Cap that they have been reduced to ashes, and Quatermass suspects they are dealing not with an intelligence, as the Russians and the American government thinks, but rather a machine constructed to harvest human protein, and like the ashes is just like leaving the rest of it behind. Quatermass sacrifices himself at the end. This was written as an ending to the character's adventures with an on-screen death, so no sequels could be made without Nigel Neal. But there's a possibility he may have left it open for the character to maybe return in some form if he was rather beamed up instead of completely disintegrated. Hard to say at this point now. When asked about what differences there were between the Houston films version and the version originally envisaged for the BBC, Neil remarked that, quote, the BBC version would have been more in the studio, whereas the Houston version was entirely shot on 35 millimeter with a great deal of it outside and much more lavish than either the BBC or I had contemplated, quote unquote. So that's probably why they obviously turned down one of their star creations there. With a budget of over one million pounds, more than 50 times the budget of Quake Mass in the Pit in 1958, the serial was unfortunately not as critically successful as its predecessors. And on top of that, industrial action began at ITV on August 3rd, 1979, escalating into a full-scale blackout on August 10th. 1979, leaving the channel and Quatermass off the air for 11 weeks. When it finally aired, it was a ratings flop, failing to crack the top 20 programs in the weeks it broadcast. Quatermass met with a generally unenthusiastic critical response. John Brosnan, writing in Starburst magazine, found the serial to be, quote, a bitter reaction by a member of an older generation to the younger generation whose apparently irrational behavior makes them appear to belong to a totally different species. Naturally, in the traditions of SF, these failings are exaggerated to the nth degree. Thus, muggers and juvenile delinquents become armed gangs, and the movement, with its emphasis on mysticism, becomes the planet church. It's very much a story of age versus youth, and significantly, it's the older people 
people who are impervious to the malign alien influence, end quote. This view was echoed by filmmaker John Carpenter, who said, quote, Nigel was very embittered about the way of the world, as was shown, I think, in the Quatermass conclusion. Reflecting on the serial himself, Nigel Neal said, frankly, I was never happy with the whole idea in the first place. The central idea was too ordinary. Although Neal was pleased with the high production values, he was dissatisfied with the casting, believing that John Mills, quote, didn't have the authority for Quatermass. He was similarly unimpressed with Simon McCorkendale, noting that, quote, we had him in Beasts playing an idiot, and he was very good at that, end quote. Ouch. Neil disliked the depiction of the planet people, as his inspiration had been angry punks rather than hippies, as evidenced by his portrayal of Kickalong as a gun-toting lunatic who commits multiple motiveless murders. Yeah, I think the politics of this one are dicey with, as people have said, Neil's kind of cranky aversion to young people really coming to the fore. But the atmosphere is nice, the apocalyptic atmosphere is definitely well conveyed. To quote the blogger Dr. Q, Neil's ideological position here is not conservative in the usual Tory sense of the term, but it is clear that he carries a lot of distaste for the promiscuous and superficial aspects of 60s British culture. Sometimes Quatermass evokes the sense of a curmudgeonly disapproval from an old man who has seen better times. When the young people are uniformly portrayed as stupid and savage, whilst the old people gentle and reasonable. I wonder whether there is any way to call such a view other than conservative. And that definitely sums up my gut reaction to it, even though I know you're a fan and re-watching it, I've come to see why you enjoy it as a sort of moody sci-fi. It's just as a social commentary, I have issues with it. You raised Mad Max, and I actually think that's a good comparison, partly because I found Mad Max, the first Mad Max, pretty reactionary as well. Although I think the sequels took it in a different direction. The, the way I look at it too, if you pretend that all of the Quatermass stories are the same character across his whole lifetime and all these different experiences with aliens and stuff, and after everything he learned in Quatermass in the Pit, I kind of feel like, okay, this is Quatermass. He's kept his humanism, but he's older, he's tired, he just wants to save his granddaughter. Really, the most he can do is like sacrifice his life to save humanity. I think it's more soft. I I like this Quatermass because to me he comes across as even more soft-spoken, whereas he, he's been out of the world for a while because he's been living in Scotland with his granddaughter. He's been out of the world as it's been crumbling. It's been pointed out by Neil that part of what he was portraying was that England was going to shit while Russia and America were the big dogs, you know, the big empires, you know? And so this is kind of a view of the English empire collapsing and crumbling and everything. So I wonder, you know, what kind of reactionary message that's trying to say nationally you know, na nationalistically, you know? You could almost call it no country for old men. That's, like, very much the vibe of what Quatermass's positioning in this is. Uh, and yeah, I actually agree, you know, I, I find it interesting that Neil doesn't like Mill's performance, because I really liked Mill's performance. He definitely, he comes off as someone with strong values, but also someone who's kind of in despair at the world. So I liked the performance. I just feel like it's sort of identifying the wrong problem 
problems with the world like it's all crime and youth run riot and i mean it's interesting this is 1979 which is the year of thatcher's election frankly i'm not calling a serial thatcherist but frankly it's the exact sort of anxieties that thatcher played on you know her whole thing was the youth have run riot the unions have run riot our empire is crumbling and there's a kind of generational warfare element to it as well so i think a lot of it is the generational shift where do you think the privatized police pay cops fit in to that view of thatcherism is that kind of like making fun of the end taking it to its logical conclusion of privatizing everything yeah i guess and like neoliberalism was already sort of underway even before thatcher came in i mean we tend to periodize it and say thatcher introduced neoliberalism but actually there are a lot of mechanisms that were already leading in that direction before then. Again, it's kind of no country for old men in the sense that old men would also be despairing at some of the dismantling of the welfare state or the society they grew up in, but also at the same time this kind of, as that quote said, it's not conservative in like a Tory sense. It's not necessarily politically conservative in that sense. It's more just that it's... Cremogeny. Yeah, and like a disconnection <laughs> from young people and an inability to really understand young people I think is a big part of it. The politics of get your ball off my lawn. Exactly, yeah. Um, I mean, it's like, um, uh, I, I, uh, I, w- I won't go there. I was going to talk about some of Clint Eastwood's stuff, but that's probably drawing a long bow. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> my evaluation, Chuck. Here it is. Forget about trying to get through to it. But surely we have to right try to... Crop can't appeal to the reaper what is he what is he i think this is the gathering time the human race is being harvested Okay, so for the next one, we're going to jump into Quatermass Memoirs, 1996. And that one actually puts it into some context, I think, because it does hint on it, even though like there's different ownership over the different serials, you know? It does hint at conclusion being what's happening outside, you know? Uh, the last of the Quatermass content that we were able to get our hands on and be able to have an analysis of is a really short one, but it was a really good audio play called the Quatermass Memoirs. It was made in 1996, and Andrew Keir returned for part of audio play part documentary that combined audio clips of the serials minus the voices of the various Quatermass actors for flashbacks of his life as he has become a hermit living in Scotland while it jumps back and forth with clips of Nigel Neal breaking the fourth wall and explaining the genesis of each of the different serials. In the story here, a writer has sought out Quatermass to discuss his encounters with extraterrestrials as a scientist. Quatermass has very much given up on science and people, possibly out of trauma from Quatermass in the pit, and is understandably cranky, but this humanist with Martian DNA can still muster understanding and kindness towards others, and that is what's very well played in this one. As short as it is, he's able to distill everything Quatermass into such a short performance. And here he is wearily played again by Kier in this play as kind of a cross between his Quatermass and kind of Mills 
Quatermass and even Eccleston's doctor in a way while keeping his humanism in my opinion and this is a great continuation and melding of the different Quatermass universe portrayals that ends on a very bleak note setting up Quatermass conclusion because there's hints throughout it and from his discussions with the reporter about what's going on in the world outside. It ends with his granddaughter go going missing, hinted at, essentially. Unfortunately, this was Kier's last professional performance. While the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who was celebrated by BBC, Quatermass's came and went with no official mention, but the fans remembered. Before he passed, Neil actually had an idea for a young Quatermass that would have had him in the 1930s dealing with Nazi rocket scientists and German occultism. That actually is pretty cool. Very young Indiana Jones there. Hammer has been reconstituted as a studio. They're back making movies again, and uh, they still have the movie rights, and they have plans of bringing the professor back, either in a new series or a movie. So, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider contributing to our Patreon at patreon.backslash/jetpack1917. And you can also support us with a review at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you use. Good night and good luck, and we'll see you in the future. You have seen this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove that it didn't happen? We once laughed at the horseless carriage, the airplane, the telephone, the electric light, vitamins, radio, and even television. And now some of us laugh in outer space. God help us in the future. <laughs>